Hey there, you're listening to Campfire, a podcast where we interview leaders imagining new ways of living. Our guests are building new cities and other ways to connect for creators, technologists, nomads, remote workers, and more. My name is Jackson Seeger, and I'm thrilled today to welcome Bo Abrams, co-founder and CEO of Komu. Komu is a travel platform that enables users to connect and swap homes with trusted friends and friends of friends. We discuss how to build trust and reputation on a platform, the unique networks and financial models that have emerged from Komu, and what market opportunities for nomadic living exist in 2024 and beyond. This podcast is produced by Cabin, which is a group of internet friends building a network of modern villages. Right now, one of the best ways to get involved with Cabin is by hosting or attending supper clubs, which you can learn more about at cabin.city. All right, on to the episode. Bo, welcome to Campfire. Glad to be here. So I want to start super basic and then we'll get into all of the fun details, but could you just share with the audience what is Komu and how does it work? Yeah, Komu is a home sharing platform that allows anybody to list their homes with and through their trusted networks on their terms. So it's really more of a a social network in that sense. But the idea is that anybody, even a renter like myself, can list their home, whether it's free to friends for costs of my rent to friends of friends or to groups, public and private groups, all the way up into an open network where a lot of users, of course, include their Instagrams and LinkedIn's to sort of social proof anybody on the internet, much like we do with dating apps. So it's a platform to encourage people to travel more affordably in a more trustworthy way compared to alternatives. We're going to come back to trust. I'm definitely curious to learn how you think about reputation within the platform, but First, we'd just love to hear how you came up with this and the Como origin story. Yeah, I will try to be brief because it's been a wild journey. But essentially, I was pretty focused on trying to go to business school. And I had worked in finance and startup operations. I actually also had a venture philanthropy organization as well. So I really initially wanted to go into venture healthcare. Realized that's probably more of a traditional VC guy. So I was going to business school for that. And to try to go to the top business schools, I knew I really needed to nail the GMAT, which is like the exam that most people take to get into business school. So I took that seven times, spent all the money I had on GMAT tutors and business school consultants, because even out of undergrad, I really didn't get into the schools that I thought I deserved to get into on my merit. And I was like, I'm not going to lose this game this time, which I kind of did lose anyways, because I didn't get into Harvard or Stanford or Warden like I had planned. But that's all to say, well, I was and so funny. Me and my co-founder were both supposed to go to different schools back east. COVID hit. We're both from L.A., we didn't want to leave our family, so we both applied to UCLA. He, ironically, by the way, got a perfect score in the GBAT the first time, so we're like opposites in that way. I'm getting ready to go to UCLA, and I'm broke. And I had just worked my butt off, and I thought, I really want to go on a vacation. So I looked up Airbnbs in Montana. I booked a stay. I was like, let me just get out of Dodge. Four nights at a crappy Airbnb in Montana was half my rent for the month in LA. And on top of that, I had that sunk cost problem of whenever I'm gone, I can't list my home on short-term rental sites like Airbnb. So it compounds. And so that's where the wheels started turning. As I get to business school, I meet my co-founder, Gus. We realized we were both remote-capable workers before the pandemic and that we didn't travel that much, even though we had well-paying jobs. And we're like, wait a second, we had the freedom to travel. There's all these people now that have the freedom to travel. 100 million estimated people in the US live and work anywhere now. And they're not. They're not taking trips. And it's because costs are so prohibitively expensive, especially for the millennials and Gen Zers that are renters, which is taking up even more of their, you know, their wages at this moment in time. So it initially started because there's this home site, uh, this website called homeexchange.com, which has been around for 20 years. And Home Exchange is a home swapping platform that really caters to 45 to 64 year old homeowners 
And this website does $30 million in ARR, annual recurring revenue. And it's not that great of an experience, if I'm being honest. And so the initial thought was, wait, if we build a home swapping platform for young people, that solves our problem because you don't have the sublease issues and things of that nature. And that's like a $100 million recurring revenue company. So we initially were called a company, a company called Swapped, S-W-A-P-T in business school. We were testing it. We were learning all these things. We were seeing what worked and what didn't. And we ran into two key issues. First, turns out that you can't actually take fees as a platform for facilitating a swap between two parties. If you do that, you technically are violating home sharing ordinances. You're not allowed to facilitate that exchange and then take value from it without being subject to at least LA and New York home sharing ordinances. So that was the first problem. The second problem was disintermediation. We would have people we'd, like, you know, we'd work really hard in this lean way to facilitate a swap Jackson in LA to like, you know, Gus's friend in New York, we'd make it happen. And that was great. But then once the trust was bridged, you wouldn't want to pay us, you know, a fee, even with the protection plan. You're like, oh, I, I trust Gus's friend now. Like he respected my place and I respected his. Like, we're just going to do this offline, much like what happens with all marketplaces, including Airbnb. And what we noticed is if you look at the behavior and what was actually happening is that people preferred to do this with and through people they trusted in some way already. And so essentially we were seeing people post, I'm sure you see it all the time, people posting on Instagram, like looking to sublet my place, essentially relying on their networks to try to find somebody that isn't a stranger and you know be connected to them in some way. So we thought if we optimize for this and we build this network in this way, it's much bigger than just a home swapping platform. It becomes a platform where people can choose these bespoke experiences that are basically predicated on the relationships that they have. So whether it's somebody like our target user like me who can't afford to travel unless I find somebody to stay at my place, like that's great. And we, we help them find these broader networks, friends of friends, you know, college groups, whatever it's going to be to find a trusted guest. But even when you're not our target user anymore, you're just a wealthy person with your home in Aspen. If you want to share that home with Komu, just with your closest friends for free, it's a workflow tool. It allows you to be like, hey, Jackson here, click the link. This is just for my close friends. You'll see the dates it's available. You'll be able soon to exchange that information of like, here's the Wi-Fi, here's the address, and here's where to eat. So that it, it sort of empowers anybody with any primary home to bring that home online because it would never be listed on short-term rental site. And so that was where we were like, we got to go build that thing right now. And we did that. That's awesome. Both of the problems that you ran into are really interesting. I want to dig into each. We'll come back to the financial transaction piece, but on the second part of like building the trust and the reputation, how do you do that within the context of an app? How is it that like in the example you provide, Gus's friend and I are going to like decide to trust each other? Because like, say I'm only like moderately friends with Gus and like, how am I going to trust the friend of a kind of friend? And how do you bake that into a mobile app? Yeah. So I will say initially, you know, I think we were really conservative to start, right, rightfully so. So initially is like the first iteration of Comey that came out pretty much in January of 2023. It was just like home sharing with friends. And obviously most people were like, why do I even need this? Like, I'll just text my friend and we're, you know, maybe making a case, but the product wasn't really doing it. And like, there wasn't really a need. We knew that hosts wanted to get to friends of friends because they felt more comfortable monetizing. And the core problem was that these are hosts like me that cannot monetize elsewhere, or they're turning to Facebook groups or WhatsApp or Instagram. And that, you know, the guests are trying to find affordable stays. They cannot afford Airbnbs that are 30% more expensive than hotels for singles that are traveling. And so we're like, okay, let's open it up. Same problem persisted though, of like, if you do not have enough friends that you're connected to, you don't have enough friends of friends, which is, even though it's exponential, it's just your, your liquidity is too constrained. The big unlock was groups. 
And it was because we saw all these WhatsApp groups and Facebook groups where people were kind of solving this problem already. And we're like, first off, what millennials and Gen Z years like the fact that they're turning to Facebook and they're paying to join these groups is product market fit to me. I'm like, I know that they don't use Facebook for anything social. It's just Facebook marketplace and essentially this. And that Facebook and WhatsApp don't have any real social proofing mechanisms. Like if I saw your mutual friends on Facebook today, you'd be probably be like, those were my friends in high school or college, but they're not maybe my closest circle at this moment in time. And so groups were awesome and have been because what ended up happening was that we ended up having both public groups, private groups, there's hidden groups like for organizations, anywhere there's trust, we can build a group and launch it. It's a more effective go-to-market strategy. But beyond that is that millennials and Gen Zers are incredibly aware of the risks that they take. And they're very cognizant of that. And they're very experiential in nature. But obviously, as a generation, we have done a great job of underwriting people on the internet, like via dating apps and, and whatnot. So what even in these open groups, which are our most popular, like we have a New York City group, we have a home swappers group, a pet sitters group, a house sitters group. The idea is that people often include their Instagrams and LinkedIn's on their profile. So if I don't have connections with you just to start on Komu, then at least I can click on your Instagram, like much like I did before this podcast to see, oh, you know, Darren, you know, and rightfully so you'd ask Darren, like, hey, is Bo a good dude? Like he's trying to book my place in New York. And like Darren might be like, hey, I would not trust Bo. He's a bad dude. But that actually is work. That's the marketplace working itself out. And because payments happen offline as well, which is really partly about circumventing regulation and just, you know, this whole piece of the network, it's to say that trust is what allows that to happen. Cause you have to be like, oh, this is Darren's friend. I believe he's going to memo me. And that is also how there's no regular, there's no way to regulate us because you would have to be essentially regulating us like, like Craigslist or Facebook or WhatsApp. We can talk more about that, but trust is the only thing that makes that work. And that's all, by the way, I should say, by the way, friends were initially predicated on a phone contact import. So it was like, if I don't have your phone number, I probably don't want to share my home with you, which is my most private, intimate asset, you know, and riskiest with letting you in. You named all these like interesting examples of private groups. I, I kind of just want to like pull more out. What are the kinds of private groups you've seen really take off and seen the most engagement? And then like the one B question to that is like any weird networks or weird themes that have existed? Yeah, I think a lot of this moment for us is testing different groups. And it's hard because like groups are totally of different sizes, of different flavors. And when you say like trust, it's such a kind of buzzword, but really some groups are too big maybe. And some groups are much more like valuable because they're intimate. It's this network of higher quality connection rather than quantity of connection. Mm -hmm. And again, that's the point. We're giving you what that experience. If you want a wide open network with social proofing, and you want to list that, you can do it. If you want to do this with your 10 closest friends, we hope the product soon becomes that valuable experience for you to, to do that as well. But groups wise, I think the two that have really done well have been women in travel. So we did a lot of testing. We found out women are our target users two to one to men because, and the, what they valued the most was the safety and trust component. And so we had some of our best, you know, investors, users, advisors that were also saying, hey, it's time for us to make this group. And they are the admins of that group. Like Gus and I are not in that group. They run that group. And our first hire needs to be a woman, if not a co-founder, because it's like we shouldn't be building this for us as two, you know, white guys. That's to say that group is the most users, the most engagement, a lot of bookings coming through there. The home swappers group is getting a lot of traction as well. So people do want to, you know, swap homes in that sense. And like it's a natural other way of leveraging your home. And then, yeah, the LGBTQ plus group, we just launched is starting to get some momentum as well, too. And then YC, we're getting ready for YC founders and alum to try to really push that a little bit harder. So at, again, we're testing a lot of different strategies. Here. Yeah, I love that. This isn't a question so much as amusing, but there's a, a previous episode we did on the show called the Co-Creation Castle, 
which was about this month during COVID that myself and 34 other friends, we all lived in this like two house compound pre-vaccine. We had all our groceries delivered. It was like a very epic, weird time in our life. And everyone who was there was there because they had this like co-creating mentality and we were all musical or creative in some way and, and just making stuff together. And now, you know, the world has opened up, of course, and all of those 35 people have gone back to where they live. I still live with three of them. And there's one guy who now lives in Waikiki in Hawaii. And before we press record, you and I are talking about surfing and he and I will swap places all the time so that he can come and stay with his friends as well. The ones that I live with and like catch up with them, but I can like go and stay in Honolulu for free. And like, I'm still in that beginner surfing phase and, and Waikiki's a great place to do it. And it's at no cost to us, but it only works when we're both able to do that swap. And if we could bring in our friend from New York and our friend from Miami and and really start like linking up everybody, I just see the potential. And when we first got connected, that was where my mind went. And I'm just really excited by the idea. But I'm also curious, I want Como to last, you know, for many years so that I can use it for many years. And originally when I saw that the financial transactions weren't in the app, I assumed it was like a Airbnb regulation reason, which I'll come back to. But I'm just curious, most broadly, like what's the eventual financial model for Como? Yeah, no, I definitely never thought, thought I'd be a founder necessarily per se, let alone a consumer social founder. But the core sort of model that we're going after that we actually are planning on launching soon is as you get to these wider networks. And so eventually we will probably charge for getting access to second degree and third degree and to these certain groups. What we're targeting is an annual subscription model, and it probably would be around $200 a year with the idea being that like, if you just do one trip on Komu as a host or a guest, you're making that money back and saving theoretically tens of thousands of dollars if you use this multiple times, you know, throughout the years with that wider experience, it becomes the services that we can provide to essentially become more of an intermediary. So obviously you trust your friends, you maybe need us in that capacity. Hopefully in time we make that case, but then let's say you want to talk about, you know, second degree or plus it's that's where the ID verification comes in, the home verification, the protection plan being able to regulate that group and remove any nefarious actors and put you up at a hotel should something bad arise. So we're essentially saying, oh, you're buying into this, even this trusted network that's wider, but we're going to give you all that value back and more. And we're going to show you even again, further ways that you are connected. There's a Patreon like model that we are experimenting with. It's sort of with that women in travel group of like, maybe there are these community creators and builders that could just run their own groups and we're the platform to do that. And we let them charge whatever they want to charge, but we take a fee. But again, it's this idea that Airbnb does $8 billion in revenue to get basically each user to take one to two trips per year, which amounts to about $50 in transaction fees per user per year. And we're saying there's a giant market there slash being created where if we can get people to pay us subscription revenue that otherwise are essentially regulated out of the Airbnb market, the millennials and Gen Zers that make up 75% of Airbnb's users, that that could be billions of dollars in revenue one day. And it's by bringing these primary homes online. That's awesome. There's all these comparisons to social networks and it is you know, a network business that you're building. And so as you grow, I'm curious how you think about the metrics that matter to you and what your North Star is. Because with their traditional, like I, I know Facebook, they cared about like their daily active users, their monthly active users in their early growth days. And with the like Airbnb, they're probably concerned with like marketplace metrics, like how many hosts do we have and how many people do we have renting homes. So 
curious just what your North Star is as you think about growth right now. Yeah. So everything is really a funnel down to bookings. Like if we get you to do a booking, whether you're a host or a guest, you typically start to see the network effect with those users. So they're the ones that invite their friends. They're the ones that evangelize the product and, you know, we're off to the races and obviously they're the ones that aren't listing anywhere else. Theoretically, I would say it comes back down to like this idea of which we have this really unique opportunity to do. It's, it's this whole come for the tool state for the network. What's beautiful about these open groups and what we're seeing is that people are coming and they're like, look, I'm leaving. I have a really big financial need. You know, I'm leaving my house in New York for my apartment in New York for a month. I would rather try to find somebody on a company that is a friend of a friend, or maybe it's an open network and maybe I'm connected to them on Instagram, LinkedIn. And once they have that experience, which every booking so far has been pretty much a great experience, then they're like, oh, and, and that's where we educate. And we're like, by the way, the more friends you invite, the more friends of friends places you see, the more likely you see when friends places are available. And, and this kind of reminded me of just going back to what you were saying with, you know, Waikiki and your friends place. There's one component of this that is really important that I'm really proud of why we built this and we're optimizing for it as well. It's the social component. And it's that we connect. I think your cabin you know, has this as well. It's this idea that um, we travel to connect. And so when I go to New York, I'm going to see my friends there. And I actually have no idea, like, who are the people from college that live in New York or the people, you know, from high school that live in New York? And obviously most of us kind of the same as the sublet problem. It's like we post on Instagram or like kind of signaling its status as a service. Like I'm going to New York, like who wants to hang? Cause it sucks when you text 10 people and you'll find out five only want to see you for lunch. Maybe that's just a, a me problem. <laughs> but the idea is from there, think about that dynamic marketplace. Cause now suddenly let's say Jackson, you're going to New York. You're using us, you're staying in a hotel, for instance, you're, you're well off, but you want to, you want to have that experience, which is totally fine. You're still using us in that capacity. And now the people around you that you're connected to. They know your place, if you listed to them, is available in LA. And you might say, you know what? I'm happy to let a friend stay there, or I'm looking for a house or pet sitter, or I'm actually open to a friend of a friend paying me my rent while I'm gone. But that creates liquidity from the social dynamics that we're already trying to solve in other ways. It can unlock a lot. And that's where, again, we're kind of saying there is a network that ties home to person, to who we trust to share it with, and then to any trip that we take. And you know, if you do that right, there's a significant moat there. Again, you have to solve the bookings problem. And that's where there's a competition right now. It's almost like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like lodging is the fundamental thing that we need to win. But then you go all the way up to connection in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And then self-actualization is, hey, Jackson, there's a bunch of places you could be traveling right now that you otherwise never knew about because your friend in New York wasn't texting you when his place was available before. But now you see it is. Take that trip. Go see your friends. And now we're like, come back to Kobo and get those dopamine hits of like, oh my God, I, I, there's a world to see. And it's right there for me. I don't have to book an expensive Airbnb or hotel. It's available to me because of the relationships you've cultivated. That's really interesting. We're kind of dancing around networks of people and the examples you give of the groups coming on are really interesting. And before we started recording, you mentioned that you had listened a little bit to the episode with the Wonder founder, John Andrew Enwistle, who said on the show that he defines community as a group of people who find an idea exciting. And so with that definition, just kind of in the back of your head, I'm curious what authentic community building means to you and, and how that plays into what you're doing with Komu. I mean, I think in his case and, and sort of what I've seen with Cabin and your product, it's like there's really more community building, right? There's a little bit more of, you know, it's, and as, we, as I've, I've experienced this too, it's hard to meet people as you get past college, like in real life, especially because we're not going into offices and as much. And that's a big, by the way, thing that we kind of want to keep, you know, of like hybrid at least workforces. So it's hard to build community as we're a little bit more isolated. And this is, again, what we're sort of trying to solve with the travel piece of this is like, hey, when you go take a trip, 
go see those friends, go connect with them. That's where we're sort of saying you actually have a community available to you. Most people have the core group of friends. And let's say you're going somewhere where you maybe don't have a network yet, right? Like you're going to Paris and it turns out you don't have any friends that live there or that are visiting there at the same time as you on Komu. It's that ability to then open that network up and say, oh, who are the friends of friends? And are they open to connecting? And can I reach out to them and you know find that? And so for us, it's more about revealing the networks that you already have and then connecting in real life. And that is actually a form of community building. And I'm sure, you know, I don't know if that's really getting back to like the idea of sharing an idea of being community. I do think that's a really good definition of community. But for us, it's almost like your friends are who you trust. And if you get to that next level, everywhere you go, you're going to have essentially a second degree or somebody that went to college with you or something that you should reach out to and you should try to connect with on those trips. Yeah. A few jobs ago, I worked at this company called On Deck, and, and one of my colleagues, she said that community has three crucial signals, those being rituals, badges, and co-creation. And so I, I can already see with what we've talked about, like Kamu playing into each of those. I want to return to something you said earlier, which is the, the financial transactions and bringing those off app. And originally, I had been guessing that the reason that was the thing, like I said, is because there are certain regulations in New York that is affecting Airbnb, but you know, it sounds like that's not the case. I am still curious though, like, can you explain just first for the audience, what are the regulations that went into effect last September that affect Airbnbs in New York specifically? And like, how can you maybe circumvent those or position yourself so that like they don't apply to you and what's the opportunity for Komu there? Yeah, totally. So the regulations that went into effect in New York are sort of, you know, the bellwether of what is going to inevitably happen in most major cities. And it's really what we're solving for. It's to say that Airbnb, which by the way, I do admire Airbnb and I admire the leadership of Airbnb, but sort of it's to say Pandora's box opened and the professionalization happened, which is why prices are so high because demand is so high. We all want to travel. If I'm a host, my job on Airbnb is to maximize as much value and money as I can. And so what ended up happening, and I feel like Airbnb definitely took the beating for this when really there's other problems with housing in these major cities, but it's that all these people started buying second and third homes, listing them on Airbnb, taking supply off the market and causing massive housing inflation, gentrification, all these other second order effects of that greed that caused problems. So these ordinances, we actually agree with them totally. The whipsaw of that is that the people that have a financial need or that need to monetize their homes in some ways, those cash strapped millennials and Gen Zers, get left out to dry and they want to take way more trips. They want to be able to go see the world. They're experiential and they can't, they just can't afford to. And so as a network, that was really where we went and like we won the largest business plan and pitch competition at UCLA digging into this when we were a home swapping platform. And I'll get more into like the regulations, how that applies to, you know, with it, especially in New York. But what we found at that point in time, which is before that regulation came into place was Airbnb lost this lawsuit. Uh, against the city of Santa Monica, where they try to say they're Section 230 compliant. They are a network. They're just like Facebook and Craigslist and WhatsApp. And the city of Santa Monica was like, no, 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 you're taking a fee. And by taking a fee, you're causing those transactional second order effects. You should be paying taxes on that like hotels are. It's like you're not a network. You're not Facebook or Craigslist or WhatsApp. Section 230 basically says as a platform, you're not responsible for user-generated content unless it violates a federal law. So you can't sell drugs on networks, even though it does happen apparently all the time on iMessage and WhatsApp. So I'm curious there. And so we thought, wait a second, all this behavior is happening ad nauseum on Facebook, on WhatsApp. Like we can, we can quantify it. It's millions of homes being listed all like over the span of months on those platforms. 
if we just become optimized as a social network for that, you know, for home sharing, there's a huge opportunity there. And then obviously the idea being that like, we show you the ways that you're connected. We build more of those social mechanisms and you're going to have that 10 X effect of finding homes that, in your network and finding people that you trust to list to. So that's really how we circumvent regulation by not taking the transaction fee. It's first that you have to trust that person to pay you theoretically on Venmo or PayPal or whatever it's going to be. It's also being blind to if a transaction is taking place. So currently I list my place for 70 bucks a night. That's my rent. If you take it to, you know, 30 days, if, if you're a good buddy of mine, I'm going to be like, Jackson, like, please don't. And it's almost like getting rid of the awkwardness of all this. I'm like, Jackson, like, don't, I basically look like I mentioned, like, don't worry about the nightly fee. Just pay me my cleaning fee. It's a hundred bucks, you know, for my, cause it's awkward to ask. I'll have a buddy stay over and he'll like buy me a bottle of wine. And I'm like, Jamie, you are a slob. I just want my place cleaned. Like as if you weren't there when I'm coming back, but you always have a place in LA. The point is it would be incredibly hard, if not impossible to prove that we are facilitating those transactions because we have no record of the actual payment happening. That being said, we do want, our users want us to turn that on in some way or another, because you book my place and you're like, what do I do next? Bo? like, how do, you know, we're kind of like, oh, we're just a social network, hands up. So we want to work with regulators and say, look, it's incredibly expensive to live in these cities right now. And we don't have the same effect of home sharing ordinances. We will share the data with the landlords. We'll share the data with, you know, you, but we will even use data to make sure Jackson's listing his place for cost if anything. And in that sense, you're empowering renters and he can now monetize his home and he can afford maybe even to pay that rent that he otherwise is maybe not, you know, trying to save money on to earmark for Airbnbs and hotels. And it doesn't have the same effect. It doesn't cause the inflation and the gentrification that these short-term rental platforms causes. And social pressure keeps people from, nobody wants to be the jerk that rips off the friend of a friend. You know, it's like, it, it really is a cap. It's a form of, you know, keeping prices lower. So that's how we plan on working with regulators and staying ahead of the curve is to say like, we are a network. So we're not like these other platforms. And if we did take payment, like an escrow model is one that we're thinking about, even, you know, trying to facilitate on the platform. It will always be that we keep prices at cost at whatever the rent is or the mortgages or whatever it's going to be. And that's how we circumvent those regulations. Yeah, I would love to see the home swap model take off and work and not be subject to these. Like even now, just to prove Bo's point for the audience while we speak, I went on Airbnb and we're recording this on what's today, December 29th. And this Sunday is New Year's. And so I'm like, all right, so say if I wanted to go up to Manhattan and watch the ball drop, which I don't actually recommend to anyone, but say I, for some deranged reason, wanted to do that, to get one, one guest staying in Airbnb in Manhattan for one night, the cheapest place I see is $349, which is just totally cost prohibitive. But I imagine there's a ton of friends I have in New York who wouldn't be caught dead in Manhattan on New Year's Eve and would maybe like to come out to my spot in LA. And like we should be able to swap and have that not be some cost prohibitive things. Well, and that's the other thing too. Like you could also just find that their places are available. You know, like they might be for free or they might be for cost. And then you might find somebody to take your place in LA, kind of like you alluded to the dynamic marketplace. And that's the network effect of like the more people you connect with on Como that you want to do this with, the more likely you're going to find that solution via the network. Love that. And I love that solution. And so as we approach close, I want to step back from just like the specific solution that you're taking and sort of return to the reflections that you and Gus were having in business school, thinking about what you wanted to start in light of your experience as a nomad. I too have heard this hundred million dollar or sorry, hundred million nomads in the US alone. And there are some estimates that predict a billion digital nomads globally by 2035. 
is crazy. And so obviously Como is an opportunity to serve this growing category, but like, what are some other ways that you might see the market creating options for semi-nomadic or, or full nomadic living? And, and I say this as someone who like hasn't signed a 12 month lease in, in like four years and still haven't really seen like that many options accommodating me. I will say, you know, I don't think us and I see ourselves as digital nomads in that sense. And I feel like the digital nomad community really is the person that isn't signing a lease. They're sort of month to month trying, going to all these new cities, building communities hard, but they do it and they, they really live that life. And I didn't travel that much growing up, which is sort of part of why I started Komu was like, I feel like people have a, should have a right to travel. And I feel like it's really important that people do and go connect with people and see the world. So that's what we care about is connecting people in that way. I see myself as semi-nomadic. And so the idea is like, look, I do want to travel. I want to afford to, but like, I love having a home to go back to. That's my like safe haven. And I want to leverage it, you know, in the right way with the people I trust to afford that. And so far it's been amazing. Like when I was in New York, we were in an accelerator. I was paying a hundred dollars a night flat for a friend of a friend's place in New York. And a friend of a friend on couple was paying my place for my place for $70 a night. And so it was like net 30 bucks a night to live in New York city was amazing. But that's all to say like the semi-nomadic is almost different than the digital nomad, but the, but really all of us, if you look at that, that's a giant amount of the population fits into those two categories of like either full digital nomad or semi-nomadic. They're traveling more than ever before. I love that Wanders and, you know, the Avant stays and all these other companies in the world exist in this sort of unbundling the group stay and cap and like, the, you know, this idea of like, how do you stay more affordably or in a better experience with groups? Because that's one great way to travel. We're on the other side with some competitors sort of unbundling the single or couple staying somewhere, right? The one bedroom apartment, the studio, maybe the two bedroom. And also we allow you to just share your second room, you know, with your friends and do that more efficiently. That's all to say, I think we're seeing urban living go through a massive transition. That's why you saw so many people also go to like, you know, Montana and all these other cities that were just not as popular, I think before for young people. It's that we all want to have experiences and we all want to travel and we want to, you know, meet new people and see the world. And so I think there's so many models evolving here that I'm really excited about. And it's a massive, massive market, like from an investment perspective, like you're talking about the short-term rental space being a $3 trillion market that's growing. And we're, we're saying there's a whole bunch of dark inventory in primary homes that are, it's almost bigger than that market. And if somebody goes and captures that, it's a massive opportunity. So. I think there's so many things being built even right now that I'm so excited for. And for us, right, we're just saying like, okay, if we do this well, we're the more trusted and valuable option for our users. And like, eventually we monetize that in a lot of ways, including the subscription and the, the B2B model, which I know we didn't get a huge chance to talk about just yet, but it's this idea that like, that's going to value, it's going to empower people to travel more than ever before. Yeah. Well, I, so I agree with everything. And yeah, let's talk about the B2B and B2B2C opportunity as well. Like how does that work in the context of Como? So I will say this is actually where like, I, I feel really proud of us as founders. So just for context, we graduated in June of 2022. Some of our competitors had raised seed rounds, like was in a little bit more of like, I would say the frothier market. And we're thinking like, I'm, and I worked at VC, I'm thinking like, oh, this is going to be a breeze. And I started trying to fundraise and it's like, nobody's fundraising right now. Like you're coming out of business school, like you've got debt and all sorts of things. And so started talking to a lot of founders that were series A founders, just trying to get advice. And they were like, oh. Driving a Series A founder right now, it's awful. Like we're trying to cut all these expenses. Like we don't know what we're going to do. And we came up with this model where essentially we would work with these companies. I'm not going to name the companies that we have pilot agreements with, but they're pretty awesome. And we help them save a significant amount of money on travel expenses and entertainment expenses. And the idea is you go tell their employees, you say, hey, 
if you stay with a friend in New York, you know, spare bedroom or an open place instead of at a hotel or Airbnb for this business trip, we will pay your friend like a hundred bucks a night flat, you know, from the company as a gift for hosting you. And so as an employee, it doesn't really work in my opinion for like big consulting firms and investment banks, obviously you're going to go get the points, you're going to stay at the hotel and get it. But when you're at a series A company and you have equity and you, you know that they're cutting costs and you're trying to be like, for lack of a better term, a company man, to go text your friend and be like, hey, if I book your place on Como, if it's available, like my company will put passive income into your pocket for something you would have let me do otherwise, which is stay at your place. So that model, it's, it turns CAC into revenue, into growth for us. And like that was because things didn't work out like we wanted. We didn't close the money that we needed. That scrappiness came because we talked to founders and sought advice. And so we're really excited about that because even if we don't become the $100 billion company that competes head to head with Airbnb, we think that's a billion dollar company for a lot of reasons. And so like it de-risked us a lot. That's really exciting. That's a really smart idea. Oh, and we could take revenue, by the way, on that model as well. So we could take like, five percent of whatever's dispersed to hosts and so that's another that was like where we're like oh like looking at the any of the investors that pass on us or whatever we're like gotcha you gotta t- you better tell your portfolio companies about us because we're gonna save them a lot of money i love that i love the creativity and the hustle and really appreciate you coming on the show bo i can't wait to use come with some more and where would you like our audience to go where should we send them yeah, I mean, please feel free to download Komu in the iOS app store. It's completely free right now. We are just, you know, at that point where we're really starting to scale and, and see that growth that we were looking for. So feel free to download there. We have a wait list for Android. We're working as, as fast as we can to get the Android version out. And then, yeah, feel free to ping me on there. Like if you have any questions, like we're really still in that hand-to-hand kind of community building mode where like if you have a trip you want to take, if, we're, if there's something in the product that you don't like, you know, we are building this with our community. So just feel free to message me on Komu. I list my place to everyone on Komu. So you'll see that. You'll see that, you know, go just hover over to LA and you'll find me and I would love to chat. So I appreciate you having me on the show today. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Well, I'll catch you next time in LA. We can hoop. Yeah. We're just surfing three to five foot tops, Jackson. <laughs> okay. We're not going anywhere above five feet like I'm seeing right now in Fort Hill.